Welcome to Breaking Doctrine, presented to you by the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate at the Combined Arms Center at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. The views expressed here are those of the individual and do not represent the views of the Combined Arms Center, U.S. Army, or U.S. Government. Welcome to Breaking Doctrine, a U.S. Army Combined Arms Center podcast series that dials in on some of the basic tenets, principles, and overall ideas in Army doctrine. On 26 December 1776, General George Washington crossed the Delaware, beginning the U.S. Army history of conducting gap crossings to support maneuver operations. More than 246 years later, and the focus on gap crossing remains a high priority for maneuver in the Army. Hello, I'm Major James Cole, and on behalf of the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate, welcome to Breaking Doctrine. Today's podcast will discuss gap crossing operations. Army Techniques Publication ATP 3-90.4 and Marine Corps Warfighting Publication MCWP 3-17.8 Combined Arms Mobility focus on gap crossing operations. Our guests today represent subject matter experts on gap crossing operations. They come to us from units and organizations that give them a unique perspective to be able to discuss the challenges the Army faces with gap crossing. I would like to welcome Colonel Joseph Cleet Getz, the 100th Commandant of the U.S. Army Engineer School, Lieutenant Colonel Terry Rizel, Engineer and Protection Warfighting Function Chief for Ops Group Charlie at the Mission Command Training Program, MCTP, and Mr. Jeff LaFace, Tactics Author and Lead Author for ATP 3-91 Division Operations. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. I'll go to you for opening comments. The forces transitioned to train for the conduct of large-scale combat operations against near-peer threats. As the Commandant of the Engineer School, which mobility task is the most important for young engineers to learn? Yeah, hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate the comments about Washington crossing the Delaware. You know, Washington was a surveyor. We'll claim it as an engineer uh, in this case in the first successful, you know, execution of of a wet gap crossing for the U.S. Army. You think about mobility tasks that we want young engineers in particular to be good at as we as we transition to LISCO to, to come to mind you know the combined arms breach uh, and in uh, the wet gap crossing and I say the wet gap crossing because it's very complex requires very detailed coordination you know across the war fighting functions it requires uh, flexibility as as the enemy gets a vote and your plan is is subject or likely to change it requires technical expertise uh, not only of, of engineering, but again, across those warfighting functions and the capabilities uh, that they can bring to bear and that you want to leverage in order for the gap crossing to be successful. And so as we train young engineers on those tasks, this is one where I feel if you can get a, a wet gap crossing right, you, you can get almost anything right because you've, you've shown that, that you've got the, the metal to do you know, one of the hardest things that we're going to ask the Army to do. Shifting to today's topic of gap crossing, we have to highlight that ATP 3-90.4 Combined Arms Mobility has recently been revised by the Doctrine Writers at Maneuver Support Center of Excellence. With that said, the principles and fundamentals within the document remain unchanged, particularly Chapter 4 of the publication, Gap Crossing, which enables maneuver, and Chapter 5, Gap Crossing in Support of Maneuver, which enables movement. Mr. LaFace, as the lead author for ATP 3-91 Division Operations and as a retired armor officer, what do you think when you hear gap crossing? 
Well, uh, from my perspective, gap crossing is not new to the Army. It's something that we've done uh, continuously throughout our history. Uh, and from a division perspective, it is the largest, it's the smallest formation that can command and control a gap crossing with their brigade combat teams executing it. Um, but a gap crossing is just an enabling operation, but uh, to caveat what you said, sir, it is probably, in my opinion, the most complicated operation that a Army force can do in combat, whether it's hasty, deliberate, or covert. It is a f operation that allows a Corps with that division to continue its operations to move on to the Corps' final objectives. But as an enabling operation, it has many sub-components of other enabling operations, passage of line, troop movements, and then all of the synchronization and coordination and time and space that the division staff, with help from the Corps staff and the brigade combat team executing, um, it is the hardest thing that we do. And it's good to see that the emphasis is back on this very complicated issue and operation. Thank you, sir. Um, and I agree with you. It is one of the hardest things that we have to do. Doctrine provides the base for our shared experience and common language to conduct operations. How has the engineer schoolhouse adjusted the development of the force to prepare to conduct a gap crossing in a large-scale combat operation environment? You know, we, we've, I think we've been fortunate that, uh, that, that the doctrine hasn't changed much in the last several years, but there are some things, you know, emerging, particularly with the publication of the new 3.0, you know, operations that we're going to have to account for, right? This notion of a, a transparent battlefield and, and you know, we, we d default to discussing, you know, what we've seen in Ukraine and the Russian experience in Ukraine. Um, I think one of the things we're going to have to adjust to when we uh, update doctrine is, you know, how do we account for the fact that you're always going to be uh, observed, right? And then this concept of uh of disaggregation you know and then the ability to aggregate quickly and in this case on a very very s small point you know on the battlefield you know how do, how do we train that um and, and how do we do that um so the dispersion aspect and it's something we always go back to and i think um you know regardless of our operational concept is just going to be uh control and how we control uh, you know the, the flow of forces, you know, across uh, across this bridge or across this this choke point. So, um, I, I think you know the, the nature of what it is that we have to do here is not going to change. You got to get forces across the gap. Um, you know, once you start putting forces across the gap, I mean, it, you've you've rung the dinner bell for the enemy. You know exact. They know exactly where it is that you're coming, and so it is a race to get combat power. Uh, across the far side of that wet gap as quickly as you can. So that, that's not going to change. I think some of the character is going to have to change. Uh, you know, how do we see the deception operation? Uh, how do we try to convince the enemy we're going to go somewhere else? Uh, how do we operate disaggregated and then aggregate quickly uh, and cross and really maintain tempo you know, for, for the crossing force at a, at a period of uh, pretty significant vulnerability for them? I know there was a time when um, the Army as a whole started moving the, the multi-role bridge companies up to the echelons above brigade level. And we took 
bridging out of the curriculum for the engineer schoolhouse. And then we brought it back as we started to ramp up the, the large-scale combat operation discussion and the change from um, the coin environment. Is that still a, a main priority for the engineer schoolhouse at this point, sir? Yeah, it is. We, we, spend, uh, we spend a lot of time talking about bridging. You know, in those, not only things like uh, the improved ribbon bridge, right, the, the float bridge that, that people see, we're, we're beginning to spend uh, some time talking about fixed bridging, line of communication bridging, uh, that's, uh, that would go in after the, the float bridge is a little bit more permanent, uh, you know, oriented on, on sustainment and things like that. You know, th- those MRBCs now are, are still at, at echelon above brigade. You know, as the Army contemplates, you know, what it is they want their divisions to do uh, as a unit of action, you know, there, there are plans afoot to get them inside of, a, of uh, our heavy divisions. Uh, so that those divisions have the means at their disposal, you know, to train the full range um, of, of their meds, right? Because one of the things that gap crossing involves, usually in, in phase five, continue the attack, is that there's a, there's a, there's a passage of lines. And so another, another element is going to go through the crossing force. Uh, and in some of the environments we can see ourselves fighting, you know, not too far down the road, they're going to have to do this gap crossing again. Um, and so, you know, regardless of how we, we array the force in, in existing bridge companies, you know, every force, mechanized or otherwise, is going to have to contend with rivers, and, and we're looking at ways to, uh, to give them the means to be able to train that. If you ever stop and look at some of the pictures hanging in the halls here on Leavenworth, you will see Command and General Staff College students up to World War II were required to execute a wet gap crossing. This underscores the importance of the wet gap crossing. Do you think it should be brought back to the curriculum of the Command and General Staff College? Yeah, I, th- I think so. If, if for nothing else, that then as a, a vehicle, you know, for, for learning, you, you go back to my opening comments, you know, where this is very complex. It's detailed coordination across warfighting functions. It requires technical expertise um, and, and synchronization. You know, as, as, you, as you teach students here for operations at, at the division level, you know, I think it probably is the, the most complex thing that they can plan. It draw, and it draws in everybody across that, across that staff group, right? Your, your maneuver officers, your sustainment officers, your, your signaliers, intel for sure, fires, right? Every, everybody's got uh, a piece to play in this thing, and I think it's a great vehicle uh, for, for teaching. And they're going to get out, and they're going to join divisions and brigades. They're going to go through warfighters, and they're going to see this on every single warfighter. Um, and I tell you, I don't know about you, but I find great comfort in having some context to, to lean on what past experience, be a PME or experiential, so that I can say, I, I've at least seen this before, and I kind of have some idea what, what to expect. Uh, I think it's a great idea to, to teach here. You know, I'm, one of the things that I get to do, and it's a great privilege to be able to do it, is, is come here for, for ASEPC, which is, you know, a course designed for our two-star generals going into command. And we go through a series of vignettes, everything from forward passage of line, shaping, uh, et cetera. But one of the things we spend a couple hours talking uh, are, are wet gap crossing. You know, so I think there's, a, there's an acknowledgement, you know, within the force that we've got to get ourselves out of the habit of saying, you know, we've got a right to be bad at this because no one's ever done it. That's just, that's just not 
going to cut it. And we owe our soldiers better. So, you know, if I were a major, I would definitely want to be conversant on something my division commander was conversant on because that might be a moment of terror uh, when I'm briefing a two-star and I realize that they've got, you know, information dominance on me for something that, that I'm not prepared to talk. Absolutely. Yeah, one of the leaders that I knew in the past would say, uh, see everything in training first so you don't see it the first time in combat. And I think that's the same way we need to be with, you know, gap crossing operations uh, where it's not the first time in combat that we're seeing it. Yeah, I mean, I mean you're right. And, and uh, look, some of the first times the Army has done this in combat, frankly, didn't go, go so well. Um, you know, Fredericksburg did not go particularly well. You know, 1944, uh, crossing the Moselle. You know, did, did not go particularly well where we decided to do a, a hasty versus the deliberate, you know, river crossing. You know, there, there's a butcher's bill associated with failure here, um, and, and we got to get after it in training, and, and sets and reps are, are very meaningful. If you get a bridge company to the gap and tell them to cross it, they will absolutely cross it. You know, one of the things that we realized over the course of, you know, 20 years of coin, it wasn't just the U.S., it was our allies as well, is that we accumulated risk in, in bridging um, for, for, all, for all the right reasons. Our, our focus was, was on other areas, and uh, you know, we're, we're addressing that now. We've got some, some new unit builds uh, that are going to get after this, and so what we're going to see is, is an increased, you know, capacity for us to be able to, to cross wet gaps. And, and again, you're gonna see it with, the, with bridging companies, you know, resident in, in our heavy formations across the Army. So we're, we're getting it right. We're getting it right. It, it's, gonna, it's gonna take time and it moves at the speed of uh, industry and the ability of the generating force to, to make 12 Charlies. Uh, and then there's the leader development piece as well uh, for our mid-grade NCOs. So we, we, will, we will get this right. I know that several, several years ago they talked about and a great deal about in breaching operations and in gap crossing operations going unmanned. Um, is that still something that we're pursuing with regard to equipment and uh, planning, sir? Yeah. A, a lot of what we're doing are trying to get, we say get the sapper out of the breach. and In this case, let's get the bridge crew member you know, out of the gap crossing. One of the I think most interesting days I've been able to spend in this job was with uh, the, the really, really smart folks down at the uh, Engineer Research and Development Center down in Vicksburg who are thinking about and are solving problems that we don't even know that we have yet. Um, and so autonomy and engineering and, and bridging uh, is on our radar and they're looking at it. Uh, small, small rafts for individual vehicles is, is on their radar uh, and, and they're looking at it. So there's a a whole host of technologies that they're thinking about uh, that are going to reduce some of the risk either at the, the, the mission level or the, or the soldier level, you know, for the future bridging. You know, this stuff, this stuff is, is years away, uh, and, and, and that's okay. We'll, we'll refine this stuff. But I think, you know, the way we bridge in 2040 is and, and ought to be very different than the way we bridge in, in 2023, and I think it will be. I'm sure a lot of lessons learned from uh, the Ukraine are, are coming in handy in the Arctic right now, sir. Well, yeah, they, they are. I, I mean, um, Russian river crossing doctrine and American river crossing doctrine is very, very similar. Um, 
I don't know if they didn't read their doctrine or I don't know if it's a, it's a function of decision-making, but there's a, there's a lot to be learned uh, by, by the way uh, that they go about, you know, crossing those rivers. And these aren't big wet gaps. No. I mean, you, I mean they're, they're not. Um, and in some cases, you know, we're, we're talking, you know, the U.S. Army is, is contemplating, you know, several times the size, you know, crossings that, that the Russians have, a, have attempted here. This is very, very complex. Roger that, sir. Uh, so let's talk execution at the headquarters of uh, the focus on LISCO with observations of division and corps. Uh, Colonel Rizel, uh, sir, your team observes a minimum of five exercises with between two and four division and corps headquarters in each exercise for the planning and execution of warfighters. How are commanders and staffs adjusting under LISCO and preparing for a gap crossing? Thank you for the, the question. So. Uh, I've, I've spoken with, with my team to, to get a consensus on, on how, uh, how to properly answer this question. Uh, and I, and we, we all agree the most important step uh, that for, for adjusting is, is having a deliberate plan uh, for the wet gap crossing specifically, not just a, a phase during the operation for the wet gap, uh, but having uh, a plan with, with fighting documents, with a specific uh, execution check, conditions check, uh, having, you know, doing a, a specific wet gap crossing rehearsal uh, so that the, the brigades, uh, not just the BCTs, but the, the aviation brigade, the fires brigade, the sustainment brigade, the maneuver enhancement brigade, so that all the brigades understand the roles and responsibilities uh, during that wet gap crossing. Uh, having branches and sequels, uh, you know, what happens if, if we're successful early? What happens if we, we culminate uh, early? And, and so that uh, there's a thorough plan, uh, and it's rehearsed to understand uh, the concept of the operations in time space. Um, additionally, I would say during that planning process, uh, clearly defining the roles and responsibilities uh, for the command nodes. Uh, what is the responsibility for, for that division tack uh, more than just own the close fight? Uh, you know, is that where they want to have the, the crossing area commander? Uh, will that be co-located with the crossing area engineer? Uh, having clear roles and responsibilities for, say, the D-Main. Uh, what is the RCP doing, uh, rear command post? And how, does, uh, all, how do all of the, the brigade command nodes with fires uh, in, in the cab, how are they tied into the deep attack um, in, in <clears throat> and how is the maneuver enhancement brigade managing that terrain a wet gap crossing uh, on a map is a is a phenomenal feat it's huge it requires a lot of control points a lot of checkpoints um, and empowering that maneuver enhancement brigade uh, to have the the responsibility to to execute those uh, so that the 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 maneuver the multi-row bridge company isn't uh, on the on the flot until until it needs to be. Uh, it's a large lumbering element uh, that is easily taken out by the enemy artillery. So having that uh, synchronized in time and space uh, is really important. Additionally, uh, I mentioned uh, fighting products, making sure that the staff at, at Echelon understands, you know, say the conditions checks uh, and the execution check. Uh, where, you know, how do we set the conditions? Uh, are we utilizing the multi-domain when we're doing obscuration or are we just planning linear smoke targets? Uh, the more successful divisions uh, think about it in the multi-domain. 
uh, more than more than just smoke. Um, you know, understanding every, where the sequence of time is, how we use the disruption, uh, excuse me, the the deception plan. Uh, how are we utilizing the deception plan? Where is it located? How does that get executed? Uh, do we have the logistics uh, to to execute that? Um, and, and we've definitely seen those successful uh, at, at the division and the core level. Uh, for the core, they have you know capabilities that the divisions don't have, uh, and how are they weighting the main effort? Uh, is is key, especially if the core has uh, the reserve for the MRBCs. So, uh, you, you know, the, the, I would say divisions have definitely transitioned to LISCO, where they're not just you know allocating a BCT to execute the wet gap crossing. There, the, the planners uh, at the division level are are seeing it as as their their mission, as the division mission, um, in moving forward with with synchronizing the the brigades across the entire division area having a redundancy plan deception uh and then you know follow on forces uh once they they cross the the gap if they uh, if they culminate you know how do they establish a hasty defense having that planned before you culminate is, is pretty key terry some something i look at you know like co coach engineers to, to do this is you were know, getting ready to execute the wet gap crossing go and look at that maneuver commander's decision support template. And if you look at that decision support template and those critical decisions that affect the wet gap crossing aren't on there, then, then you're all alone, man. Like, <laughs> right, that someone is viewing this, the gap crossing as an engineer show, right? When it is a, it is a combined arms, you know, operation. And so, and when you get it on the DST, then, then you've got some, some real power there the g3's tracking it, the g2's tracking it right because you've got now you move beyond condition setting to where you've tied it to a P pir priority intelligence requirement and a friendly forces information requirement and you've got the entire staff looking at it and that's when you can begin to to feel maybe a little bit comfortable that that you're you're combining arms so, so to speak and the whole the whole staff is looking at this as a division problem and not a a engineer get, get us across the river problem and that that seems to be the, the the issue that you that you see is that people without the experience and the training and the education view a wet gap crossing as an engineer problem so the maneuver guys can get to the other side and then continue on and you know plant a flag on the big core objective on the far side and it's not it's a core commander problem it's a division commander problem that's executed by brigade combat team commanders and they're the ones that are responsible with their staff and the help from the engineer brigade or other engineers that are on the division staff to sequence it and call things forward under the command and control of the division tack to get them across whether it's you know two crossing sites or you know or more depending on what assets are available um, and that's because when we're writing ATP 391 for division operations, we have a separate appendix specifically for the wet gap crossing because people just, not through any fault of their own, but just for inexperience, don't understand all the moving pieces and parts that are involved and in how do you see to this thing. And the decisive part is not actually the crossing itself, it's being able to get enough combat power across to secure it and then pass somebody through because that's what's most important to a core commander. Yeah, I mean, great point. 
right? Um, we spent a lot of time talking about phase two, you know, assault, assault across the gap. Um, this, I, I truly believe that, that this fight is, is won or lost, you know, phase one, you know, or, or phase zero, some, some, of, some of the shape. You get the bridge company there and they survive. Uh, you got them in the right place in the order of March. They're, they're, they're going to they're gonna cross that thing. But, yeah, you're absolutely right. And then when a division has, has that success at the wet gap, um, as you had mentioned, sir, getting the locked bees forward. Because you're going to need that all of those uh, those float bays at the next fight at the next crossing site, uh, and I, I feel that divisions are, are are having that plan integrating with their the logistics planner or in the G4 uh, to to get that piece of equipment moving forward and getting that lock be in place. Yeah, I mean, so we we would begin to template moving lock B uh, before the lead division even conducted passage lines. I mean, that, that's how far in advance you've, you've got to be thinking of it. But when you think about lock B, one, one of the things I don't want leaders to do is, is fixate on where we put in the assault float bridge, right? Where, where you put in the assault float bridge may not be the place that you want to put in your, your lock B, right? You're going to put that assault float bridge in, you know, the place that supports maneuver, um, you know, facilitates deception, you know, maximizes the probability that you're going to be able to get combat forces a- across that wet gap. The, the, but that might not be a great place that you want to sustain across, right? So the, you know, the first thing I would coach people is, hey, look, look for fixed bridging. All right, so if you can take that, that piece of fixed infrastructure, and even if you got to reinforce it, I'm telling you it's going to be uh, make your life easier than if you have to put in a lock B. And if you've got to put in a lock B, and that, then I refer to that kind of as the, as the bridge of last resort because that is something that I think transcends being a tactical operation to, to really becoming a construction project because of some of the tolerances involved and some of the equipments that you know involved. I mean, um, you know, imagine if you will, you know, a crane going boom up on the flat. Uh, pro- probably not a super survivable. Uh, you know, situation there, but 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 that is really what we're talking about doing when we uh, we talk about put putting in lock B. Excellent discussion, gentlemen. Um, I want to kind of rewind just a little bit because we talk about the ATP and we give everyone the references, but we really haven't given them the additional information they may need to connect some of the dots when it comes to what we're talking about with regard to gap crossing. So. We identified three different types of crossings, deliberate, hasty, and covert. Can you, uh, gentlemen, talk about those three types of crossings and when or why we would do, say, a hasty crossing versus a deliberate? Well, I mean, the preferred method is to be able to do it covertly because it disrupts. It has a minimal effect on disrupting the division's ability to overcome the obstacle and move on to the a core objective without it losing so much combat power that you actually have to do a passage of line for that force. Um, Hasty is um, something that a a division looks for, but it takes advantage of the terrain and some of the things that are there at the gap, such as a Ford or um, being able to put a bridge in quickly without having to pause for more than six to eight hours, as I understand it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those, those situations where the division commander 
sees the benefits of maintaining tempo, you know, outweigh the risks of not, you know, executing a, a deliberate crossing, you know, in, in the full and in detailed coordination. I think it's a risk. It's a risk calculus. Historically, from what I understand, usually there's great risk to the force because if you gamble on, or not gamble, you push forward to do a hasty crossing and your uh, read of the enemy or their, the situation is not uh, as uh, advantageous as you thought, historically that's when units have gotten themselves into a lot of trouble and a lot of uh, American soldiers have gotten uh, killed, captured, and then they have to pull back, regroup, and then go into a more deliberate planning process in order to get across the gap because the, the enemy always gets a vote. Yep. Yep, and, and, that, and at that point, you know, you've, you've lost the element of surprise, you've lost combat power, um, you, you know, and you've blunted your, your tempo as well. And I've seen a, a, a division do, do more than just one uh, during, during a, uh, a warfighter exercise. So the, the div cav forward, you know, may execute a covert to get on the other side uh, of the wet gap to, to do that reconnaissance mission to understand what the enemy is. Uh, and then, and then go in, you know. Then the, while the divisions, you know, also planning a deliberate, and you know, like somebody mentioned earlier, the, the enemy gets a vote. So if that deliberate uh, execution site, you know, where they're going to plan on doing, you know, and have most of the, say, the float bays in, and indirect fires come in, then we have to do a hasty uh, in, in a different location, uh, just because, you know, we still have to cross the river. We've got some of our forces across. Uh, from rafting, and, and so it, it, it's not, not uncommon for my foxhole to see more than one of those types of, of white gap crossings occur. And that really gets to the fundamentals of the gap crossing that are listed in uh, 3-90.4, uh, the first being surprise, which you've mentioned several times, sir. Um, of the rest, uh, I think speed is probably one of the most important, uh, and we've talked about that as well. Is there any part of preparation or flexible planning and traffic management that you would want the force to focus on and planning ahead of time? Tra traffic management, super not glamorous, R right? Um, I think no, no one wants to, to, to get in the traffic management business, uh, but 1,200-ish vehicles in, in an ABCT, um, I don't know, quick, quick math. So you put 30 meters in between them you know what's that like 36 kilometers you know that that's a that, that's a heck of a traffic jam you know by by anyone's standard so i think you put the work in for traffic management i think you also put the work in for terrain management because everywhere that's a great place for a bridge park is a great place for uh, position area artillery is a great place for a tactical assembly area is a great place for a cp is a great place for far um so you're going to have you're going to have competition for the prime real estate in the divisions AO. So, you know the things that'll make you successful when you get that bridge in to sustain your tempo are the are the things that are, you know, probably really just onerous and nitty gritty uh, and not glamorous. You know, kind of thing that no one really wants to do. Uh, that I think will be the difference between success and failure. So it's it's terrain in uh, in traffic. And and you got great MPs out there, you know, whose job it is to regulate the traffic flow, you know, from from uh, the assembly the assembly areas to the holding areas onto the engineer regulating points and across the bridges and then working things out on the far side of the gap. 
uh, as well. I think it's important to remind everyone that it's two-way traffic as well. So eventually you get the two-way traffic. You're, you're, you're right. You know, so when you put a brigade, when you put a BCT across a gap, you're going to have two center lines and then you're going to have uh, another bridge company do, doing rafting operations. And, you know, in the early hours of that thing, I mean, it's going to be, you know, s- straight one-way traffic across there because, again, like, it's, a, it's a race for, to get combat power uh, you know, to the, to the bridge headlines. And then eventually casualties got to come back. Damage equipment has to come back. Um, you've got to sustain across that thing. Um, and eventually it does become two-way traffic. I think that decision is, is one of the, the critical decisions uh, a division commander or, or a DCG in the DTAC has got to make. And the, uh, for the crossing itself, uh, we talked a lot about bridges and that kind of stuff, but the role of rafting because that's the first thing that you're going to do after you get your assault force across the river and they're securing that toehold, you're going to start rafting because that's where you're going to be able to get your tanks and your infantry fighting vehicles and your other heavy equipment across initially so that they can expand so that when you finally make the decision to put the bridge in, there's no direct fire that they have to worry about. There's a minimal amount of indirect fire and the division can, through rafting and and then when that one bridge is there, just get more combat power because that's the thing that's going to cause the most issues on the far side. Yeah, I think, you know, rafting gives you your flexibility. I think it offer, also offers you a degree of protection uh, as well because that, that raft is moving. You can have different, uh, different rafting points even, you know, with, with, within the crossing area. And the thing that gives you the throughput is, is that full closure. Sir. Uh, the Army recently published its new version of FM3-0, which discusses multi-domain operations. Where do you see us going, uh, and how will it affect engineer doctrine in the future? So, the, you know, there, there are five tenets of multi-domain operations. So I think about, think about bridging, really, I think about three of them. I think about endurance, uh, I think about depth, and, and I think about convergence. You know, all, all three... Uh, come come into play in, in this particular uh, operation. Um, for, for, for the engineer regiment, you know, thing, things that I'm thinking about, you know, the, the, the regiment has always been in the business of uh, overcoming and enhancing the impacts of terrain uh, to, to put us in a position of advantage. You know, with, with, with MDO, you know, five domains, three dimensions, transparency, all, all, all these things that we see coming down the pike in the operating environment and we're seeing to a limited extent uh, in Europe and things we anticipate seeing in other parts of the world. I begin to wonder if uh, we, we need to get into business of not only overcoming and enhancing the impacts of terrain, but if we have to get into business of mitigating the effects of distance. Um, as well, right? So, um, mo- mobility, uh, very much into mobility, but not perhaps uh, in a tactical sense, but even in the, in the operational sense, um, to, to allow the Army to capitalize on the tenants of MDO, I think is going to take a regiment um, that, that focuses on the, the impacts of distance on the force of well because you got longer look you got longer range shooters you got longer range isr you've got a 
you've just got a deeper battle space. Um, you know, but, but, but agility is also a, a tenant of, of MDO. So you're going to have elements that potentially are dispersed or further to the rear than you, than you would otherwise like them to be, but for the purposes of protection, have to be there in order to survive. And then someone has to give them the ability to, to get to where they need to be or change where they are quickly in order to be able to do that. I, I think that is incumbent on the regiment, and that's something that, we, that I'm beginning to think about. And I think it's going to make its way in, into our doctrine. It's not only about terrain now, it's going to be about distance. Sir, I, I would say that that's, that's, your comments are very accurate into how divisions are utilizing the tenants uh, during warfighters. Uh, windows of convergence uh, for protection, for, for obscuration uh, during the wet gap crossing is, is exactly uh, the direction divisions are headed. Think, think, about, think about it, though, um, especially about endurance, right? So these, these bridges are going to be, these bridges aren't going to be in the, hour, in the water for, for hours. They're going to be in the, the water uh, for days, weeks, but, and potentially months. So how are we thinking about, you know, we talk about creating, you know, temporal windows of superiority in multiple domains, you know, in order to converge effects and in, in, in defeat the enemy. In, in this case, though, you know, this thing that is, that is very important to us and, and really is, you know, an essential lifeline to maintaining the temple of our operations is something that we're going to have to maintain superiority in multiple domains, not you know, not temporally in a short sense, but for, for, for a heck of a long time. Um, it's, so it's going to put demands, uh, particularly on, on the protection war fighting function um, and how we think about protection and what we're willing uh, to commit. Because as the divisions move forward, right, th this thing that was once super important remains super important, but because it's, you know, 40, 50, 60 Ks to the rear, um, be begins to become you know, someone else's problem. Um, but it protect, it's going to put tremendous demands on protection, you know, to keep these things alive and in the water. And then to go, to go caveat what you're saying also, sir, is that because it becomes less important, it still has to have air defense to protect it from, you know, all those different types of assets, uh, indirect fire. So you have to still have to be able to protect it with radars and for counter fire and, just because it's way back there, if you want to drag a division to its to a grinding halt that's 60 kilometers that way, is take out that bridge that's not as important as it used to be, and now there's no way for fuel or ammo or whatever to get up to the warfighter that are that are up there doing their second or third river cross yeah. or uh, wet gap crossing, and nobody was really paying attention because it's you know way back there in the rear with the gear. And it was somebody else's problem. It's something that you can't ignore. And because it's a valuable, limited resource, you know, how much, how long, you can't afford not to ignore it. You can't afford to ignore it. There, I mean, there, there, so, I mean there, there's a security bill associated with this. Uh, and and who, you know, who, who pays that bill uh, for, for security? In, 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 you know, I suspect, again, as divisions move forward, 
uh, their, their rear boundary is going to is going to collapse, right? So the the core is going to own that space. It's probably going to be uh, the the core's responsibility to maintain that. Um, you know, what does the core retain uh, in order to secure and, and to protect that? And then there's just a general maintenance that goes along with it yep. that is no longer a priority because everybody's way out there up front. But again, it's now a lock and you have to maintain it. Yeah, you, you do. And there are just some really just practical things that you've got to do when you've got a bridge in the water. Uh, you, you've, got to, you've got to break that thing uh, every week or two just to let all the, the stuff, think the trash, tree limbs, you know, tires, whatever, you know, that, that float down the river, you got to break the bridge. You got to let all that stuff go by. Um, you know, water levels are never constant, you know, so water level goes down, you got to take bays out. Water level goes up, you got to, you got to add, add bays in. And so they, uh, they, they are not, uh, just things you put in the water and, and forget some, some good bridge crewman, some bridge platoon is going to have to go out there and maintain that thing and, and inspect that thing uh, to, to make sure that, it, that it's safe. And maintenance on the boats, sir, if, if, if this, the current's high and they've, they've got to keep the boats in the water, it's, it's an endurance fight for sure. Yeah, right. And so in, in a lot of cases, you, don't, you can't just put the bridge in the water and let the, let the boats go. I mean, in, in high flow conditions, you've got to have boats on the downstream side pushing upstream, you know, so you don't get a, a, a bow. Uh, in, in that thing. So, you know, the, these bridges aren't, they aren't a highway bridge, right? They're, I mean, really, they're, they're marvels of engineering. It's you can back a truck up to the water, dump a, dump a bay in, uh, connect those things up, and then, and then pass an M1 over it is, is really pretty incredible. <laughs> yes, sir. Is that why the, there's such an emphasis on the, what do you call it, the B-lock? Lock B. Lock, lock B. B. Where it, you take something that is temporary because it's needed forward and then you have something that's more permanent that's but still needs to be protected still needs to be maintained still needs to be you know yeah so i mean the the the, the lock b is a great system lock and, it, and it's and it's been around commercially you know for for a long time and so you, you put in a, a float lock b uh you know the 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 pontoons are the only things touching the water. So you don't really have, uh, you know, you don't have a requirement to kind of clear the, the upstream, you know, detritus, you know, that, that lodges itself uh, against the bridge. Uh, they're typically secured by cables uh, on each shore to keep the, to keep the bow out. The, the, the trade-off there uh, is, is the time need, needed to in place. Uh, like I said, they, the building, putting in a lock B is, is, it's not so much a tactical operation as it is a construction project. Um, and these things, you know, some of the, the, the larger float lock bees, you know, can take upwards of uh, a week to a couple weeks to, to, to get them in. And, and so I think, um, you know, we, we lull ourselves perhaps into a sense of complacency that, you know, well, after a few hours, we can just get a lock bee in and that just takes a couple hours and our, and our, and our problems are solved. Um, this is a it, it's a great long-term solution. Just takes quite a while to get it in the water and and, uh, and and ready to go. Which again, what why I go back? Look, fix bridging first. Um, think a lock B as your as your bridge of last resort or your bridge that gives you you know fle flexibility in your life. Um, it should you lose that fixed bridging. I hear endurance and agility, sir. Uh, for partners, how do we integrate them in the wet gap crossing? 
Go, go ahead. So, so great, quick question, uh, great point because it it's going to be uh, very significant, especially as you 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 approach the wet gap, right? So we're in somebody else's nation who's in conflict. Um, so you're going to have a significant amount of. Uh, IDPs, individually displaced personnel, uh, <clears throat> going the opposite direction that we're trying to go. So utilizing, uh, just from the beginning, utilizing host nation resources, um, whether it's security, police, uh, whatever, whatever they have to help, you know, for one, you know, uh, redirect those personnel. Um, and then, you know, after the crossing site or after the get the gap crossing, utilizing contracts, right? Because those some of those people that are that that are displaced or that are still there, you know, they're contractors, they're construction, um, you know, they, they operate, you know, equipment. Um, so, you know, there's 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 still abilities to do uh, operational contracting support OCS uh, during you know during the conflict to hire and it stimulates the the local economy again as well um, you know so we can utilize those those resources that that nation has for you know fuel for parts for personnel for skilled labor um, through contracting uh, after the wet gap and into um, so that we can keep getting green suitors pushed forward to uh, you know to the flock some of the things that commanders need to keep in mind is the engineer brigade that they may get from Corps to help the division cross the river may not be a engineer a U.S. Army engineer brigade. It may be Polish. It may be German. It may be, you know, whatever. And the level of complexity that goes with all of a sudden, well, we're well trained in how we do this with a U.S. engineer brigade to get across this river as a division. Now I've got a German brigade engineer brigade very good very capable how do i integrate them into the plan early so that all of those complexities of terrain management traffic control all of those kinds of things can happen seamlessly so that it, you know we can maintain the tempo of the divisions crossing so we're talking about interoperability you know ultimately here right now and so kind of I think about interoperability I think about three things I think about you know kind of cultural interoperability do we understand each other and how how we do business just what what what's the software of our society if we will and of our army and how we do business there's the doctrinal interoperability and then there's the material interoperability so our, our couple of our allies namely uh, the, the British and the Germans both both use the same uh, you know, bridging system works well. They actually train together in Germany. Very, very interoperable. You know, U.S. bridge systems not not interoperable with theirs yet. You know, our, our great allies, the British, uh, have just just sent one of their their bridge you know bridge systems uh, down down to Vicksburg. We're we're in the early stages of engineering an adapter that's going to allow you know a U.S. float bridge. You know, to, to link up with this German or British, you know, float float bridge um, as well. And so I think so. We, we've acknowledged that each one of us trying to do this for ourselves probably isn't going to get it done. Um, and then you know, something that our allies are really good at, and, and, I'll, and I'll speak for myself, and it applies to, to others listening to this, is they really they speak NATO r really really well. And it's funny when you go to work with the allies, you know. Um, whether the Americans in charge or not, you know, the American puts them puts themselves in charge, and we begin to default to our to our doctrine 
um, which can confuse some of some of the allies. But you know, we've got we've got these standard NATO agreements, right? So we've got uh, 2395, you know, wet gap crossing. That Stanag it is is a great Stanag. It's probably the closest thing to a checklist, you know, for for a wet gap crossing that you can find. So if you've got you know a, a Polish engineer unit facilitating a crossing by a U.S. unit. You use that Stanag, and I, I venture to guess that they're probably pretty, pretty well versed in it. We, we owe it, I guess, to, to, to be the great partners that we want them to be, um, to know it as well as they do. And I, and I think that's your, your doctrinal interoperability that, that's going to allow this to happen. And if, I'm, if I remember, 390.4 references it and, pro, and uses quite a bit of it, and then the appendix that we put in 391 on the wet gap crossing with the work with the maneuver support center and MCTP and others here at CAC, those kinds of things are something that we always look for in doctrine. So it's not that going to be that big a leap. Although, I mean, there's, I'm sure there'll be some issues and stuff to make sure that when we do do something with a NATO partner, we do speak NATO versus, you know, I'm the ugly American and I'm going to make him do what I want them to do the way we, the way our doctrine says, as opposed to NATO doctrine. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, as we uh, draw this episode to a close, I need to ask, is there anything else we need to cover? I think our, our ability to be able to cross rivers is not going to become any less cute. And as I said before, we have to stop giving ourselves excuses for, for not being good at this. Okay, we've got too many opportunities to work at this in simulation we have we have opportunities to work at this in home station we have opportunities uh to talk about it and work through it you know at at, at pme and so this excuse of we haven't done it before so we shouldn't be good at it just just isn't going to fly and we owe it uh to the soldiers that we lead uh to to, to be better um and to and, and to get better and become as proficient at this as as, as they are because again, those bridge crew members, those 12 Charlies that we're producing at Fort Leonardwood, absolutely can get the job done. I mean, I've seen it. They are, they are a great product uh, and they're, they're really, really motivated. And so now it's incumbent upon the leaders um, to put in the same level of effort and develop that same level of proficiency to be able to do this. Yet, bridging in 2040 is gonna be different than 2023. Um, that it's, it's going to help us mitigate some risks to the individual soldier. I think it's going to give us some options um, for, for crossing, you know, that, that, that we don't have now, right? Whether it's, it's individual rafts, um, if, if it's autonomous, all, all those things are coming. And, and again, every time I talk to the, the men and women at the Engineering Research and Development Center, I'm glad that they're on our side because, again, they're solving problems that we don't even know we have. And then, you know, within the regiment, at large, you know, as, as we deliver Army 2030 and we think about Army 2040, we're, we're going to see more change in, in the Army and in the Engineer Regiment in the next 10 to 15 years that, than I've seen, you know, in totality of my career. And you can either be terrified of that or you can be invigorated by, by that. I, I choose to be invigorated, um, one, because I go out and I, I talk to folks every day and every time I talk to them I'm convinced of the fact that our army is going to be absolutely okay and we're going to continue to be the best uh, and, and the changes are coming 
you know, within the engineer regiment, you know, we're talking about bridging, but whether you're talking about, you know, breaching, bridging, construction, there are some really, really exciting things on, on the horizon that, uh, that people ought to be really excited about. You know, but, but if you listen to this and, and you come to the conclusion, like, I'm not where I need to be on gap crossing. I don't think my division staff is where it needs to be on gap crossing. Just call us at the engineer school. Like, we, we will always answer the phone. Uh, we'll, we'll give you product. We'll give you, you know, LPD sessions, NCOPD sessions. Uh, we, we, will, we will tell you everything we think you need to know to get this right. Um, and then, um, you know, the, the, the fine folks at MCTP who see this multiple times a year, um, I think, uh, are, are always available for, for some coaching on the side as well, and, and they see this. But just give us a call. Uh, and we'll get you to a place where you're comfortable. Thanks for this opportunity. I really, really appreciate it. And the, the other thing is, that <clears throat> back in the day when I was a division planner, by the time I had gotten there and we had done our warfighter with a division river crossing, I had actually gone through the planning, prepping, and the execution and simulation five times between CGSC, SAMS, and the train-up for the warfighter and that kind of stuff. And it, it made, I mean, there's still things I remember from that train-up that I still carry to this day. Um, so it's the starting with the majors, not, not what your 12 Charlies do because they already know what they're supposed yeah. to do. It's the majors and the lieutenant colonels and the division and corps staff officers that they need their grounding and foundation before they actually get to a division because a company commander with in command of a tank company or a mech infantry company or a team or whatever uh, is is just going to go he's going to be told to go across and the traffic regulation to get them across the river is not the hard part the hard part is the timing the sequencing and developing the decision support template specifically just for that river crossing is what majors and lieutenant colonels and colonels get paid to do and um, if they don't get those iterations starting here at CGSC, when they get to division staff or core staff, they're just going to be going like, uh, yeah, this is going to be hard here, engineer. What do I need to do? Yeah. And it's too late at that point. Well, thank you, sir. Thank you all for coming. And we appreciate you uh, having this discussion with us on the gap crossing. Uh, this discussion will most likely continue at various echelons and commands throughout the Army. Um, I'd like to thank our listeners for joining us today. If you've enjoyed the, today's episode, please hit the subscribe button on either Apple or Google Podcast to get new episodes automatically. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at U.S. Army Doctrine for updates from the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate on new episodes, as well as our Doctrine Digest and Foxhole Fundamentals video shorts, audiobooks, and most importantly, new doctrine. Finally, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official position of the United States Army, the U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command, or the Combined Arms Center. I'm Major James Cole, and this has been Breaking Doctrine.